Hi, everyone. This is Binny Krauss. Welcome to the Opening Up podcast of SAR Academy. It is great to be here today. We are gearing up for the 2023-2024 school year. We have about 200 teachers in the building this pre-Labor Day week for our in-service. Lots of different programming. It's time for class setup um, and getting ready for the day after Labor Day when our kids will be coming back to school. Our theme of the year this year is reaching out. Um, we're thinking about how to connect to people who we might not naturally connect with, uh, which I think we can all relate to and we all believe is valuable. And in order to do that or to frame that for our teachers and now for our community, I asked a friend, uh, a new friend, someone who I met, had the honor and privilege to meet this past summer, really uh, kind of randomly, because we reached out and connected with him when we were away, and you'll hear the context uh, in a couple of minutes. That reaching out led to a really powerful encounter for my family, and I wanted to share that with our community and with our teachers. So Sam Herod was our guest at the opening in-service program for our SAR teachers for this year. He spoke to our teachers the other day, and I wanted to share that conversation with our community and with our listeners. And this is just to give you a little bit of context for that conversation, which is coming next. We hope to be able to continue to connect with Sam. I think that the feedback, I know that the feedback they've received from our teachers has been very, very positive and they were inspired by what he had to say. He is a remarkable person um, and I will allow him to speak for himself. We did this in interview style to make the conversation flow better. There were some slides, but I do not think they are central to, to being able to get the gist of the conversation. And I hope that you will enjoy that conversation as much as we did and learn from it like our teachers did and like I did. Thank you very, very much. I am going to bring up a guest, Sam Herod. I'd like to tell you who Sam is. Please welcome Sam Herod. Let's see. Yeah, while I introduce you, you could maybe, maybe Emily, can we get him that? Just make sure he's comfortable. I've been sitting here for like two hours. Um, you have whatever's comfortable for you. I'll get you a mic. So I want to tell you what happened to me, to us. Um, it was only three or four weeks ago. Maybe three weeks ago. Uh, our family went to the Jersey Shore for the weekend. There's a shul in Bradley Beach at the Jersey Shore. There's a shul. We've been there a couple of times before. It's, it's not easy to find a place that has both a beach and a shul. Um, there's someone here who, where's Tova Fink, who was the uh, Rebbitson at the shul on the beach in Venice, California. But um, for the most part, usually shuls and beaches don't go together. Um, but on the Jersey Shore, if you go to Bradley Beach, you can. It's an Ashkenazi shul um, that's near the beach. Ruthie Stavsky and Eliezer Stavsky, who many of you know, um, have a house. Yeah, I got it. Um, they have a home in Bradley, and we just have an Airbnb. And after uh, after Shul, we were talking to Ruth and Eliezer, and, and Eliezer introduced us to Sam. And it was basically like Sam's a really nice guy, which is, which continues to be true. Um, Sam's a really nice guy. He's been in this community for a little while. And then we started talking to him, and uh, my wife Shana was talking to him and said, why don't you come, come with us for lunch? So we, so we invited Sam for lunch. And then we spent the whole summer Shabbos afternoon, we spent the whole afternoon pretty much together. We had lunch together, we walked around a little bit. Um, and everybody that was there, it was my family and some friends, 
we were remarkably blown away by this person. Um, and you, and you'll, you'll soon see, I think, I'm sure, actually, you'll soon see what was remarkable about that encounter. Um, but then I was thinking about like, wow, maybe that's what reaching out means. It means that if you just like reach out and like talk to somebody who you don't otherwise know or you wouldn't necessarily naturally talk to, that's what community is about. And then you can have meaningful relationships and form, create meaningful experiences and hopefully lasting experiences. And that's what, again, that's to say lasting. I mean, I know you for three weeks, so this is like, <laughs> I got called the guy up. I'm like, could you come speak to our te 200 teachers on, on before Labor Day? He's like, sure, which, which is, first of all, really nice of you. Thank you for coming. Um, and let's get into it because I've been talking too much. Okay, so Sam. I think we have a picture out here. You are from Fairbanks, Alaska. Anybody here from Fairbanks, Alaska? Okay, good. So you're from you're from Fairbanks, Alaska. Tell us about that. Uh, well, hi, well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, growing up in Fairbanks, it's uh, in the heart of Alaska. The closest town is the, the major city is Anchorage, which is the the star, and it's a six-hour drive in the summer, and so um, uh, it's it's quite remote. But there's also there's a city, and there's a university, and there's a symphony. So there's sort of like you're living within uh, society. It's so like the last outpost of normal life before you're in truly in the Arctic Circle. Uh, so that's like regular Alaska. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. And so in my childhood, I, I kind of, it's, it's kind of surprising because people don't go to Alaska without a purpose. Uh, uh, there's obviously a, a wilderness aspect. There's uh, oil and gas. There's military. Um, but it's also sort of a melting pot for people that just don't fit into what we call the lower 48. So these, these like the black sheep of, of your family might one day end up in Fairbanks. And they'll love it there because the rest of the black sheep are there. And then the further you go away from Fairbanks, there's the, the black sheep of the black sheep. Look, we, talk about people, we talk about people out of New York as being out of town. So you're like the lower 48, same <laughs> idea. Exactly, upstate, upstate, lower 40. Uh, but so I was kind of one of these kids that like grew up inside of this uh, environment, and um, and surprisingly, I, I lived without ex really experiencing the state that I was that I had grown up in. Thank you. Um, and so uh, I had a bit of a difficult upbringing. Uh, my, my dad wasn't really around much since I was 10. My parents divorced. My mother um, had a, uh, uh, an infection in her brain and had to, like, this was probably, I was told that she wouldn't survive, but she did, but was very handicapped. And I became a carer through high school. It, became, it was a whole thing. Like my childhood was a bit intense, grew up a bit poor. And so, um, Needless to say, I didn't really experience the place that I lived in. And so uh, when I finally was independent and on my own in my late teens, early 20s, then I, I started to explore, explore the state and, and experience it and uh, started to run and climb and, and really uh, yes, see. Go ahead. You went to school? 
I went to school. I went to public school. So yeah, I mean, you can imagine like like uh, your elementary school classroom. It's like it's like maybe two thirds school, one third closet for all the winter gear because we had so much. Like like recess happened regardless of the weather, so we would be we would be out playing and these like little frozen little children, and you'd have like little frost nipped noses, and and it was and and yeah, just. The, um, the, 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 we didn't slow down for the weather. It was kind of a unifying uh, aspect of, of living there is that everyone's sort of suffering. <laughs> so, you told me that you weren't, when, when we were talking and preparing for this and also that job, you said you told me that you weren't, you weren't a great student, but you also told me that you have a PhD in glaciology or something. Yeah. So how's like, how do you become a poor student and then get just like pick up a PhD in glaciology? Yeah, and I mean, and this is maybe some, something that a lot of you teachers can relate to, which is sort of, sort of. Uh, I mean, now you can use labels like neurodiversity. At the time it was just, I was, I felt very inadequate academically. I, I had a brother, a brother and a sister that cruised through school, had no, no trouble whatsoever. And then I was a, a bit more difficult and then um, just struggled deeply through school. I think there's, um, uh, I, I went on, like, like at, some, at some point they sent me in my, in, in high school, they sent me to trade school because I was just not clever enough to, to survive in, in regular school. And I was learning how to weld and fix things, which is, which I enjoyed, but I also didn't really fulfill, um, uh, what I wanted to do. And so, um, uh, I continued on into university, and there was a kind of a telling moment in my in my career uh, as a scientist where I was taking I was started university, but I was so far behind. I was taking like remedial classes. I was basically taking high school again in college. It's like you pay for it, but it's it's like um, and it doesn't count as credit. It was it's rough, you know. Uh, and and so I was taking high school trigonometry in college as a college student, but I was simultaneously. Um, like I said, I was running and climbing. I was in the mountains, and I and I started to just do something that was life changing to me, which was I just started to see the whole world around me in terms of questions, not just in terms of of this is a chair and we're standing in a, in a these are the, the palisades are behind us. Like it's like why are the palisades behind us? Like you start to just question every single thing around you. And once I started to see the world as questions as a climber, I was seeing glaciers and mountains and I wanted to know where did the mountains come from? Where did the glaciers come from? What will the glaciers look like? If we can figure out what they'll look like in 10 years, what will they look like in the 100 years? And so I started to think along these, these questions and start to go to the university and uh, put myself around people that were also studying them. So I was this, I was technically an undergraduate. I was taking high school and I was sitting with geof uh, 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 PhD students, master students, postdocs and professors. And that's where I was, that's where my brain space was. And so I was, um, it was a telling, telling moment where I was sitting at the table in this, in, in the, the geophysical department where all the, where all the scientists were. And I was, uh, I was trying to solve for some, some kind of phenomena in glaciology that's not understood. And I was trying to predict how this glacier would behave in a hundred years. And a, and a professor came over and looked over my shoulder and said, hey, Sam, what, what, um, what are you doing right there? And I was like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm using the, the diffusion equation to predict uh, this quantity about this glacier. And he's like, you realize that's a partial differential equation. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, it's 
doing what I needed to do, right? It's functional. It's like, what, what, um, what math are you? And I was like, oh, I'm in trigonometry. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he's just thought, like, he said, maybe you're in the wrong math class. And I appreciated that being seen in that way. But yeah, I've, I've lived in this, in this very sort of a dichotomy of some things I can do with great ease and I'm able to um, see, see the solutions to problems and in other spaces, it's, it's like almost complete deficiency. And it's, I've lived in that space my whole life. Are you now working for the University of? Uh, Ohio remotely. Doing what? Uh, writing a deep learning model to predict where uh, reservoirs of free hydrogen might exist so that we could um, sort of. Oh, everyone's doing that. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty, wow. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, three, like three months. Just started the job. Just the last three months. Yeah, yeah. Most of my work is in Glacial. Now, so you can imagine we're having this conversation over Shabbos and they're like, but there's more. So, so I like to think, and my family often tells me otherwise, I like to think that I'm a runner. <laughs> I'm not going to go, right? Running with the rabbi doesn't exist anymore. I ran the San Diego half marathon, and, and then I, I participated in the Jerusalem full marathon, and it took a long time, and it was a mistake. Um, but I did it. And one of the things, I actually remember coming back to this group, speaking to them after the half marathon, and saying, um, you know, amazing things that you learn when you do these things. It's like, we finished the half marathon, we were dead. And you're like, how, all these people are doing, doing that again, now. Like they're doing double that. Um, and it was like a remarkable and humbling kind of feeling to experience. And then sometimes you meet people who are like, yeah, you know, right, you know, half marathons and marathons. And there, there are people in the world who run ultra marathons. Do you know what an ultra marathon is? A hundred. So that's a hundred. So if you look on the board, I think um, what we have over here, and I'll just read it to you because you, I found this on your website afterwards. So sorry, after Shabbos, we we just looked you up. We went to the. You know, that's that's. They thought I was inflating my resume. Right. We. I was like, come on, you know. So so you ran the Mid-State Massive Ultra, um, October 2022. You didn't win. <laughs> Um, 156 kilometers in 23 hours, 32 minutes, and 40 seconds. Can you tell us about that a little bit? That's only one, by the way. There's a whole list. You ran the Crimea. Some of these things I think you shouldn't put here. Like the fact that you ran the 27K is not impressive. The 50 miles, whatever. But I mean, the 100 mile ones are, are impressive. So there are a few of them over here. How many, how many ultra marathons have you run? <laughs> Who's counting? I don't know how many marathons I ran either. Okay. Good. What, tell, what's up with that? I mean, uh, you run a marathon and you say, well, let's keep going. Let's keep it going. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's, an, it's very it's, uh, liberating to see where your legs can can transport your 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 body to, and it's meditative, and and it's a community, and and it's these accomplishments, and this sort of solving systems. You have you have your body is ne there's no way you'll run a hundred front to back and have just the most cheerful body, just happily letting you do this. Like there's all there's always um, 
something. Uh, I think that's kind of what I started. Why I started running. It's like to me, it was a very clear path of being a not a very interesting person to being a very interesting person if you just move your legs a lot. Like there's no way you're not going to see something incredible if you start somewhere and just move your body for a hundred miles. I promise you, you will see some things. So you just start repeating that over and over again. So yeah. So I mean, you run every day. Right after the shop, he's like, I'm going to go for a short run, which was seven, like seven miles. That was the short run. And, and that's just what you do. And you talk about it. it was like, when I talk about, think about going for like a run, I'm dreading it. Like, you, you look forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's sort of factored into mental health. It's factored into just routine and time yeah. with yourself and time to process. Incredible. And then, you know, their hobbies. Um, so your hobbies, if you, again, you could look this all up. I mean, you, so you, you play music, you play, this is you playing piano and drum at the same time, is that accurate? Can, why, why, why do you have to play both at the same time? I'm not very good with social skills. <laughs> Can you talk about all of that? Uh, well, uh, it, I... I wasn't, a, when I was picking my instrument to play, my sister had already chose percussion. She was more like classically minded. And, and I just loved, the moment I heard, a, I grew up around a lot of classical music, so hearing a beat behind some music was just, just perfection in my ears. And, but since my sister was playing the drums, I had to play the saxophone. And, and uh, in, I was in jazz band in middle school, and, and the drummer was, playing very poorly and I just couldn't handle it. And it was against the rules to touch the drums, but I just threw down my saxophone and I sat behind the drums and I could just play. Like I just, like, I wish I could say that there was something more to it, but I could just play. And uh, so the, 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 uh, the band teacher said, why don't you borrow the drum set and come back a real drummer next year? So I did that. But the problem is we also had a piano in, in our house. And while I was playing drums to myself, I was wanting to hear the music, the melody. And so I thought, wait a minute, this is just like a problem of coordination. Like kind of, what can you get away with with the, with the limbs you have? Why not see if you can subdivide your brain and play more than one instrument with more than one, uh, with half drums, half, like you just, just, I mean, you have, basically how many notes can you hear at one time and be overwhelmed? Like if you hear more than four notes at one time, it's kind of mush, so I have four hands, why don't I just subdivide some of the, some of the limbs to be drums, some of the limbs to be pianos, do a little of both, and that's kind of where the idea came from. Basically, I made some rec some recordings as a as a as a teenager, young like like 13, 14 years old on a cassette tape. And honestly, the quality is not much different than what I can do today. Like I didn't get any better. I just could do it. <laughs> right, so just to be clear, I have a piano in my house too, and it never has yelled out at me quite <laughs> like that. Um, you actually wrote an article, which again you could look up. Can, a, can an observant Jewish? Oh, you want to play? You can, it's up to you. We're, we got all day. Good.
So like you said, not that, not that good. That's amazing. That's incredible. Wow. Well, that, that's, that's, that is incredible. Um, you wrote an article. Can an observant, can an observant Jewish, can, it's okay. Can an observant Jewish runner run? Did you say this was in the Jewish link, actually? I know it wasn't in the Jewish. Okay. <laughs> I'll make that up. Okay. Can an observant Jewish runner run an ultra? It was uh, again. I encourage you to. I encourage you to read it. That's that was the first thing we, we looked up after after Shabbos, and you talk now. The reason why you wrote that is because you're studying. You you're in a in a process of of, of gear of conversion. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So uh, it's kind of a bizarre. Pro Everyone asked me where does this desire come from, and it was kind of a strange origin because it happened in Alaska, in Fairbanks, where there's no observant Jews anywhere in all of Alaska. Well, in Anchorage there is, but in Fairbanks, it's 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 there's plenty of secular Jews, but and and a reform um, shul, but but it doesn't really exist there. But I started to already read uh, books on orthodoxy and conversion already then. Um, and so that, and that was 10 years ago and sort of as I've gone through, I lived in Europe for some time and, and, uh, and mostly my, my, where I lived was a function of my school and degrees and, and, um, and science, but everywhere I, I ended up there was always a, a Jewish community that I sort of infiltrated and learned from and, and I've kind of known, I was, I've known since probably about 10 years ago that this would happen, I just wasn't quite sure when and where in the process and finding the right community and that's it's, it's, uh, basically at the very tail end of it now, I think that's probably quite imminent now. Um, but so in the process of learning all the mitzvot and, and, uh, and how to observe Shabbat, I started to wonder how this life that I've been living as an ultra runner would coexist with uh, 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 orthodoxy, observance to Judaism, because um, basically, I mean, as you well know, any, any sport, there's, you'll find Jews that are quite talented in it, but uh, uh, ultra running is quite unique in the sense that uh, if, if someone's davening in the morning, in the afternoon, you can easily fit a 5K, even a marathon in between, but if you have a, an event that spans 23, 26 hours, like pretty much every, every, every element of Judaism that uh, occupies a, a, an observant Jew's life throughout a day will have to take place simultaneously with the, with the sport. And I thought- Well, I decided not to run ultras. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But, but now there's a, there's a guide, so maybe there's a, maybe we can train you up for one. Um, but so I thought, I thought there was some room for comedy and I wanted to uh, sort of just paint the picture of what it would be like to um, be observant and also participate in a sport like this. And, and uh, so I wrote an article about it and published it. How can? Oh, yeah, like how, how can? Well, so the hardest thing is that a lot of the races are are will have some over, overlap with Shabbat, and so you're you're you're. I went through I think 50 races from the U.S. and also like a global series of of ultra races, and and I found two that you can do and avoid Shabbat. They're both in Europe, uh, one in Switzerland, one in France. Um, but I mean, two is not none, so that's nice. And um, <laughs> and so, I, uh, yeah, I just talk about how you would uh, need to make a bracha over your your running snacks and over the beautiful mountains in front of you and, and the the the, and the strange people all around you. Um, 
uh, and how you, you might bring to fill-in if you're a man, and, um, and, and, but, but mostly I focused on, on going through uh, a lot of the laws of Shabbat and, and, and making jokes about how your race director could make, build an Eruv so that you could carry a granola bar for 100 miles, you know. So, <laughs> so we had a great Shabbos afternoon. And like I admitted, and I admitted this to Sam, and we met the next morning, uh, we did. We did, after Shabbat, kind of start looking this guy up. And um, we were really curious about, about so much. And I have to tell you, and I'm sorry to do it this way, but I have Sam's permission. Um, we ended up at, on your Instagram account. Uh, not on your Instagram account, like, follow, like whatever you do, looking at someone's posts on Instagram. Um, and we found the post if you, from May 2022, which is a post of your dad. Um, and there's a picture, again, if you can't see it, it's a picture of your dad. My preferred Instagram posts are latte art, which you also know how to do. You told us about that. Run, science, and music. These are my life, so it seems personal enough. But with this post, there's a few bits of more deeply personal information I'd like to share with my friends, in part because it will save me from having to remember who I've told two weeks ago. My dad, Walt, died in Anchorage from Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is a rare, relentlessly brutal, terminal, hereditary, neurodegenerative disease where a set of CAG, CAG, repeats on the fourth chromosome, cross a threshold from perfectly normal to unsustainable. Symptoms of Huntington's disease usually begin between 30 and 50 and the decline to death is variable in pace but unavoidable. There is a 50% chance of inheriting the mutated gene from a a Huntington's disease positive parent. And while there's currently no treatment, there's definitive gen genetic testing. At 9.30 a.m. on a partly sunny Thursday in May 2016, I left Whitley Bay Beach in Northeast England and walked alone into the Newcastle Center for Life to learn the broad reality of the rest of my life. With a worn empathic expression, my genetic counselor told me I had 41 CAG repeats and will develop Huntington's disease. I slumped in my chair for a moment, experiencing how my mental preparation had been oddly inadequate, straightened back up and said, Okay, if you scroll back to my first Instagram posts, one is of Whitley Bay and the second is donating spinal fluid for Huntington's research. I fall into a tiny set of humans who are known to be Huntington's positive but not yet symptomatic, making my body useful for developing a possible future therapy. As soon as I was diagnosed, I volunteered for every study I could and planned to give more spinal fluid in London this fall. It can be extremely problematic to disclose this sort of information for work, living abroad, relationships, but it's in the fabric of who I am, and I would like to be open about it while I still have the ability to articulate myself. I'm not in any way looking for sympathy, and at 40, I will still be able to crush the out of you <laughs> in a foot race, but now you know a little bit more about the world that I live in. So, you can imagine how it felt, well, to the people that met you, you know, a few hours before, to read that incredibly, incredibly sad and incredibly bold expression that's not that old, it's only a year old. For you, it's about seven years old, the information. Um, and then we invited you back to, to, uh, to talk to us the next morning because we needed to be consoled because we were pretty shaken up, to be honest. Um, and he came back and we spoke for a few more hours. Um, and one of the things that you said was that you 
are hoping to be able to share all of it, like all of all of you and all of your story um, with people in the hope of kind of the practical things that you mentioned and then just so many of the potential lessons that you might be able to share. So I wanted to give you that opportunity to reflect on that. Yeah, there's just uh, a, a lot of people that have this uh, condition that feel silenced or unable to speak out about it just because it's so devastating. It can really have repercussions on obviously uh, relationships and children, but also also things like uh, immigration and and uh, maybe employment. If an employer gets this information, they might elect to not hire you if they know what the future holds for you. Uh, but I thought that uh, I'm on a unique enough trajectory that I'm not beholden to, to these constraints. And if I f sort of suffer some consequences from this, that I'm willing to take them on just for the ability to speak out about it while I have the ability to be articulate. And I feel like I can be in some ways a spokesperson for uh, disability because um, many people that live with disability will never be able to stand before you and, and articulate what they're feeling. And I can't say that I can understand what it will be like for me in the future, what it, what it is like for other people, but I do have the ability to um, comprehend uh, the, the, the immensity of, of it and, and how even in the preparation for getting a diagnosis like this, it took a year. They want you to go through a lot of psychological evaluation because there's a, a high frequency with suicide from learning this information. And so they uh, are quite careful with giving, you, giving it to you, the information. And it was interesting that in that process, you prepare yourself for either outcome, but when you get the outcome, it's still, it's still devastating. Um, in a, in a way that you couldn't anticipate. But what that has given me is an ability to have an understanding about uh, sort of our mortality and life and, and what, uh, what you prioritize in it. Uh, especially when, I mean, in, in, in a simplest sense, we're all sort of in the same trajectory. Mine's just slightly better understood and probably a lot shorter. So, um, I, I've sort of been able to connect with people in a, in a very unique way that that uh, I have I have I have the the counterpoint and the and the sort of uh, authenticity to be able to share with people who are maybe going through a dark period in their life or experiencing hard things that um, the, the, I can share with them how I keep myself doing these things and occupied and fulfilled and, and positive and, and forward-looking, uh, even with sort of a, a grim future. So it's been sort of a blessing in disguise in that sense. As you know, because um, we all know, the time period that we're in, the weeks leading up to Rosh Hashanah, are for everybody times of, of reflection. Reflection um, simply means that we do what we call a cheshbon hanefesh. Cheshbon hanefesh, you know, maybe when you're young, you think it's like, okay, let me think about all the mistakes I made and then how to fix them, which is maybe part of it. Cheshbon hanefesh, I think, as you grow up, means what matters. You think about what is important, 
who am I, what's important, what matters, and what should I do with that? Um, I've often said here, my father, Allah HaShalom, used to wake up, uh, wake us up on Rosh Chodesh Elul and say, Matarf Chubatin, you gotta start, you gotta start reflecting, you gotta start reflecting. And that's something that we sometimes are successful at doing and sometimes less successful. I know that when I and my family, when we met you, um, that allowed us to reflect, not in a, and you were incredibly powerful to us because it was obviously hard in many ways, but you, you made it positive and you had such a, you know, incredibly, incredibly strong way of articulating all of this like you just did for us now. Um, and we are very, very grateful to you for sharing that with us. Of course, I think, I know that we all join in wishing you well, wishing you tova in every sense of the word that you should, your, your conversion process should continue successfully and the things that you care about and that you commit yourself to should continue to be successful and you should have strength to do all the things that you do and that matter to you um, and make a difference in the world because it's pretty remarkable. So thank you. So a little bit over time, but for any, any questions or comments, I'd love to not just break. Um, so thank you for sharing. This is this is not a joke, it may sound like one, but um, time management. Um, can you explain how you can do these things? Like how do you, I don't know, it seems like you do everything possible. How, how do you do this? I don't have any friends. Um, I, no, I just, I try to be very, I have, I also, my brain is always in different directions. It's quite hard to focus it on one thing, but when it does focus on one thing, it's quite, quite capable. And so it's just been kind of a constant, just process of how can I uh, uh, figure out how to optimize, get, get into these sort of focused states. And then if I'm not in one to do something else. And so if I have basically like four things that I'm quite passionate about and, and very interested in. And so uh, I just try to, if I'm not being functional in one area, I'll, I'll do a hard shift to a second. And I try to get up. I start usually start running, um, uh, I don't know, so in the, in the winter it's 420 on the, on the dot because I run with the teacher. And so we run before school. But um, so yeah, so I try to run early. Like I wake up very early and, um, and just try to uh, be as efficient as I can. And, and um, and sometimes I, I don't I'm like not always crushing it, but but uh, if you if you have these things that you're extremely passionate about or that you want to accomplish uh, to get to as high a level as you possibly can, uh, you'll find a way. Like you'll you'll be able to um, maybe do two things at once: take phone calls while you're on a run, or make uh, make be more efficient with with meals and things so that you can do your science, do your running, be creative. And then I'm just always on my phone, I'm always writing notes and and uh, <laughs> always taking notes. And 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 while, while the thoughts come, I'm constantly jotting down. And, and I have, in all these different areas, this, this um, 
constantly log it. When the moments of creativity come, I make sure it gets into a note on my phone. Okay, and the second part is, um, I don't know if you can express this, but um, how do you believe, like you see something so sort of like big, I'm sure you break down into small steps, but how do you actually believe that you're capable of doing it? I love that question. Um, uh, my whole, I, I got a PhD in, in glaciology, but the entire project that I took up to, to this, this high degree and I published in, in a nature journal, in a, in a well-respected journal, and the whole, the whole project could be sort of funneled back to a, an instant where I was standing on a glacier in a, in a graduate, graduate student-led field course, and they were trying to explain to me something about the, the, the mass balance of a point of a glacier. And I was too preoccupied with something around me that I didn't, I didn't understand, and I asked questions, and like, don't think about that, don't think about that. And I just, in that moment, could just see the entire project from start to finish. I didn't have all the intermediate steps, but I knew exactly where it could go. And, and almost to the T from that point when I was 20 to when I finished my PhD, uh, it was really just following that trajectory. And so it's just a matter of, of seeing, seeing questions, seeing the problems, seeing the holes, and then trying to think, do you have the tools and the, and the knowledge to fill them? How do you have? What Jewish community have you decided is the appropriate, is the right one for you? It sounded like that was something you had to turn. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So my, my first kind of exposure was uh, Chabad in Southern California, and I found that really a moving environment. Uh, from there, I went to a very Haredi uh, community in Gateshead, in Northeast England. I lived there for three years, and um, now I'm sort of in a more modern Orthodox uh, community, but uh, there's not a, a daily minion at, the, at this shul on the beach, so I've been spending a lot of time davening with um, the Syrian community. So I've kind of had a nice uh, smorgasbord of all the varieties. <laughs> yeah, so I think I'll probably land in, in the modern Orthodox. Um, just, just to. Uh, so I. <laughs> you know, I, we when I, when I would climb with with uh, we would spend sometimes uh, in these big Alaskan mountains. The trips could span weeks, and and you're if you're if a storm comes in, you'll you'll be trapped in on, in a tent with another guy for for a, for a really long time. And I would, that's the only time in my life when I studied openings. Um, but uh, otherwise, I don't think it's. I think there's. I'd rather. I don't know, write code or, 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 or learn, learn language as my brain teaser. So, so I'm not that good at chess, what I'm trying to say. No one's here is good at chess. Okay. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. Super uh, interesting and inspiring. And um, when I was getting my master's, my, my focus was on um, how movement impacts learning and the connection between moving your body and then the learning that can happen or that can blossom from there. And I heard in your story, and I'm not sure if I'm making it up, that um, you had a hard time in school and then you started running and then you started climbing and moving and then things opened from there. Was that, was that a connection for you? Was that something that, that aided your... Um, I could say learning, but you know, um, even to development or your your sense of self or anything along those lines. 
I mean, it definitely helped with the sense of self, it helped me make friends who then were smarter than me and could help me. Uh, there was a classic moment where one of my climbing partners sat me down. I was failing a class in, in, in my undergrad and he, he said, pull out every test you've taken, let's go through it together. And we go through every question. It's like, you got it wrong, got it wrong, got it wrong. And he starts to read the answers. He's like, you, you wrote clever things. They just didn't answer the question that was on the page. Like, you just need to learn how to read the question a few times and actually answer it. Don't just say the things that come to mind. Uh, I would say honestly, no, though, that, that the, the running, I mean, it was, yeah, so it was great for community. It was great, great for mental clarity. But, but I think the struggle that, that I've experienced as a, as a kid and in school, uh, it's not gone away at all. I think I still live completely with it. I just, uh, there, there was, I skipped a master's because I published a couple papers in my undergrad. And, uh, and a professor invited me, a European professor, saw the work I did at a conference and invited me to, to, to do a PhD with her. And I said, no, 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 I need to do this master's first. It's like very course heavy in the US. She's like, look, you're obviously terrible at this. Why don't you just do what you're good at and do science? Just write the papers. And so that's what I did for three years. And so um, I think it was just a matter of like running was movement was definitely a, a massive advantage for all parts of my life. It's like a tide that rose all the ships, but, but I wouldn't say there was a one-to-one -one as far as my brain working a little better. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, I think we're going to break and say thank you again. Uh,